Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Let's get to the issues here. The big story, the biggest story anywhere this past week, has been the carnage in Las Vegas. And uh, later on on the show, I'm going to be speaking with uh, a Canadian who is very well known internationally as an expert on ISIS. Graham Wood has interviewed ISIS members. His book is called The Way of Strangers, Encounters with the Islamic Sect or Islamic State. Meanwhile, uh, ISIS almost immediately claimed responsibility for the mass murders in, uh, in Vegas, the attack by Stephen Paddock. And Graham Wood, in Atlantic Magazine, he writes there regularly, wrote, Why did the Islamic State claim the Las Vegas shooting? I had a chance to talk to Graham Wood on Thursday. We're going to play that back for you in a little while, and we'll talk about what he has to say. But in Chicago, I decided the other day when we were all talking about Las Vegas, I decided to have a look at the Chicago statistics for gun activity and shootings. I had to look around a bit before I found the numbers. In Chicago, I think it was Wednesday of this week, shootings were at 2,877. There have been some 2,877 attacks with firearms in 2017. And the question is, what's the fundamental reason behind all of these shootings and deaths? A Chicago epidemiologist at the University of Illinois argues the shootings are a public health issue, and he'd warned the governor of Illinois a surge in shootings in Chicago would occur after funding for his program, Ceasefire Illinois, or Cure Violence, as it's also called, was cut. He was correct. Now, the Cure Violence program is successful in New York and Los Angeles and other urban areas. We've had the opportunity to talk to Dr. Gary Slutkin in the past. Came away very impressed with what he told us and what his program's all about. And he's back with us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Dr. Slutkin, good to talk to you again. Good to be with you again, Roy. If I can just set aside the Chicago numbers for a moment, what does that shooting in Las Vegas speak to as far as you're concerned? Well, it primarily speaks to the contagious nature of violence itself. And uh, we're seeing this in uh, mass shootings. We see this in suicides. We see this in vehicles um, barging into crowds. And we see this in the community <clears throat> with all kinds of reasons being given. But um, the, the common denominator of uh, people who are doing this is not actually their stated grievance. It's that um, they're susceptible to the contagion um, by nature of one thing or another um, having to do with either social isolation or unhappiness or something, or basically their friends are doing it. In other words, they've had very large doses of exposure. So that, that's what it primarily um, speaks to um, for me. And that's why it's so interesting for me why um, people are so uh, focused on what is the motive. You know, is it uh, a dislike of this group or an association with that group or whatever? But, you know, from Columbine to um, the Charleston uh, Church to this to the Orlando to everyday um, shootings, um, it's exposure to violence and susceptibility to, um, to that exposure. And this is what, this isn't um, uh, just an idea. I mean, this is as we've talked about before, this is very well established now in the scientific literature. We did a, uh, a workshop on this at the Institute of Medicine in 2012, which can be downloaded from the Cure Violence website under Understanding Violence. The, the, there's now hundreds of studies showing the contagious nature of it, dozens that show that I'm um, treating it um, as a contagious issue causes um, rapid reductions and uh, thousands of studies showing that it's a health issue. So we've, we've 
we've fundamentally misdiagnosed this problem, um, not just recently, but in a way forever, and that's why we continue to have wars and we continue to have violence. Yet, I mean, you know, we no longer continue to have very much plague or leprosy or tuberculosis and and even malaria is going away because we've put science into the mix, realized their contagious problem issues, um, revealed what it is that's going on underneath it all, and then approached a different approach than um, calling the people bad. Instead, you know, went into interruption and outreach and changing behaviors, and basically what uh, we in public health have been doing um, for a few centuries. How difficult is it to persuade people, at least initially, and persuade people who have control of money how difficult is it to persuade them of the kinds of activities that are taking place, for example, in Chicago, with the, gun, with the gang well, violence, the gun violence? How difficult is it to persuade them that it's a public health issue and not just thousands of gangbangers who happen to have access to firearms? Yeah, you put your finger on the obstacle because um, I don't want to be too um, cavalier about this, but reducing violence behavior is actually uh, itself is a lot easier than changing smoking behavior or changing sexual behavior. I, I know both of these fields. I worked in one of them for a long time. And, and reducing violence behavior is, is a much easier behavior. But what you've just pointed out to, changing the worldview, the belief systems of the public and uh, policymakers is harder I mean, we had an uphill ride with AIDS because people like to think of that the people who had AIDS as bad until, you know, somehow we finally got around to, yeah, it's a health issue. But, um, yeah, that's the challenge. At at the same time, though, it's if you look at those who have in our funding this work, you can see that it's it's gradually picking up. I mean, in in, um, Chicago, a whole number of, philanthropists have come together to put um, uh, outreach and interruption and the health approach back in. This is going to be starting um, fairly soon. The state uh, uh, that Chicago is in, Illinois, it has a new budget, and um, the Cure, Cure Violence in Chicago has now gotten funds, and it's hiring. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. In Chicago in 2016, the highest total since 1997, more than 4,300 were wounded by firearms. And some 2,877 gun attacks already this year. Dr. Gary Slutkin is with me, epidemiologist at the University of Illinois. He is, uh, what's the, uh, the cure of violence? Is that, that's your program, isn't it, Dr. Slutkin? Help me out here, please, guys. An NGO associated with the University of Illinois at Chicago. Okay, and it's um, it's it's working in on five continents now, and um, rated one of the higher or rated organizations and the most actually for reducing violence now because of the data and the specificity of the methods. Okay, so let's talk about how it works. Uh, let's let's say uh, the city of Chicago decides that it's going to fund. You said now you've got private individuals who are going to come up with the funding. And that's great news for the people of Chicago. But how does it work? How does the system, in fact, work? What is it about cure of violence that cures the gun violence? What takes place? Well, I mean, it, it, it works the same way, really, that we manage all other health epidemics. So if you're aware of, and most people aren't, you know, of health workers who are looking for cases of early cases, first cases of bird flu or SARS, or plague, or TB, or cholera, and then uh, second and third cases to prevent spread, you know, the, there are health workers in the public health sector who um, look for these and cut them off and stop their, their occurrence and then prevent the spread. And we do the same thing with uh, violence. We have health workers. They work for community groups, and they um, work under health departments in, in most cities, and they're out um being aware of what's going on in the neighborhood, and they have the trust of the people, and um, including the people who shoot. That's how they're selected. And so 
they these workers, pure violence workers, will um, understand that something happened at the party last night that somebody's upset or that someone owed somebody money and someone's upset. So they can go, go in there and begin to interact with those people to cool them down, change their thinking, buy time, and then essentially persuade them out of it, which they're almost 100% good at. And then we continue working with them just like we continue to work with other people who have infectious processes to ensure that they stay cool and that there isn't a relapse. And we work with them for six months to two years and with their friends. And the results of this, I mean, so you might have eight or 20 of such workers in a reasonably sized neighborhood. Usually you'll see the shootings and killings going down very rapidly once the group is um, hired and ordinarily it's sustained as well. And there's a lot of, I mean, there are neighborhoods now in Baltimore and New York that have gone, um, two years and one that's gone three years without any shootings and killings that used to be very dangerous neighborhoods. And so many now that have gone 50%. We, in New York, there was a study just released Monday showing 50% reduction in, um, shootings and, uh, violent events. And in one neighborhood and 65% in the other neighborhood that was evaluated as compared you to are, controls. The program also engages former or even current gang members, right. correct? Well, it, it uh, hopefully not current. And you, it, it's it, we're looking for people who have the same shared experience mm-hmm. and the same um, because that's and we do that in every field of health and public health. We use um, people used to use. Um, drugs to treat people who are now using drugs. You, we use moms to reach moms for breastfeeding and nutrition programs. We use um, sex workers to reach sex workers or former sex workers and so on. And so, yeah, that's that's the formula. That's the technology that most people don't know is that it, um, that you this is required for um, this is the way public health works. Yeah, and Dr. Slutkin. No of course, knows how that works. We, right? Time, time always, always goes by quickly. We have two and a half minutes here. Um, what would be a reasonable percentage or a reasonable number to aim for? No pun intended. If the uh, cure of violence program is adopted by a, a large municipal area, large urban area, where there's a significant amount of gun violence that's taking place, and cure of violence is put in place and it becomes very proactive and it has all the component parts working. What percent, How much of a percentage of drop do you expect in gun violence? What could be expected? Well, it, it's very common to see 40 to 70 percent drops in shootings and killings and that occurs relatively rapidly within the first, you know, couple months. You know, it needs to be done right. I mean, it, it's it, it, you, you can't do it yourself like many things. That it's So our team is, you know, assists communities in um, getting set up. And, mm-hmm. and of course, there's um, hundreds of hours of training um, over time, initially 40 and then 100. So, you know, these workers are specialists, like right. emergency medical technicians. So how do people, if there's a, if there's a mayor or council listening to this program now and they're thinking we should give this a try, what's the first step that they have to take? I think um, it is really to go to the website, Cure Violence, and um, there is a way to um, connect with us on there. It's called, um, I mean, there's a, there's an E there, and you can, um, yeah, there's connecting points on our website. Okay. And is that CureViolence.com? Yeah, your CureViolence.org. .org, okay. So we need to pick this up again and have a further discussion and perhaps have some people uh, who are involved in the program join us and give us an idea of what's happening on the street corners and on the streets. And I'd love to do that. Dr. Slutkin, thank you so much for the time today. It's important, and it's been one heck of a week that has a lot of people thinking about the tragedies that have taken place. Thank you for the time, always. Well, they're talking about the same stuff, yeah. so it's time to turn the page now. Thanks yeah. so much, Roy. Thank you. All the best. Dr. Gary Slutkin, University of Illinois, epidemiologist. Cureviolence.org. Have a look at it. They're extremely successful. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. With me now is Tracy Wilson, and Tracy joins us from 
the um, let me just get this right. The Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. It's not firearms rights. It's firearm rights. The Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights, the CCFR. And uh, the CCFR argue it's time for legal gun owners to come out of the closet to reduce stigma and battle stereotypes. And uh, certainly over this last week since the horrific shooting in Las Vegas, it's been perhaps more difficult for gun owners to make their case if they so choose. I've seen emails. Tracy, thank you for joining us. I've seen Thanks, some you know, I've seen some emails over the past couple of days, and people know that I I have no issue with with Canadians legally owning firearms. But I've I've seen emails from people suggesting that maybe now it's time for me to face the truth and face facts that anybody who wants to own a firearm is some sort of sociopath in waiting. And I have tremendous, tremendous uh, empathy for the families of those who were shot and, and you know, it's, you, feel, you feel just absolute horror at what happened. But you separate that terrible incident from good people who own firearms. You have to separate the two. But how do you do that and how do you do with the away with the sort of the uh, far too easy stereotype of the gun owner as some uh, overweight uh, driving a four-wheeler uh, with a baseball cap on backwards heading into the woods to you know, to just shoot some beer cans or shoot some animals. How do you how do you deal with that that stereotype? What do you do about that? Well, we've been working on that in many different ways, Roy. We've got a, a women's program. First of all, we have women as as part of our leadership. Uh, that makes a big difference. We've um, engaged in a women's uh, programming where we've had range days for women uh, all across the country to bring new shooters out. We participate in youth programming. Um, you know, we've, we've got gun owners from every walk of life. And I, I know when things, you know, horrific things like this happen, the most ineffective people call out for more of what hasn't worked. Um, you know, it, it's a difficult conversation. It's a very complex situation. But I think if, if we ever want to see some change to this, we've got to have that honest conversation with ourselves and, um, you know, stop with the emotional knee-jerk reactions that you have proven over and over again that it doesn't work. Yeah, well, you, for example, you're a, man- a manager of a law firm. You manage a law firm, correct? Um, I, I was working at a law firm, and now I'm working full-time for the CCFR as a registered lobbyist. Okay. But it's not... I mean, if, if I were to meet your members, if I went to an event where, at random, 20 of your members were there, who, who would I be meeting? Well, we've, right on our board of directors, we've got lawyers, we've got uh, real estate agents, we've got people from every, every walk of life, every profession. We have teachers. You know, we, gun owners in general, there's over 2 million licensed gun owners in Canada, and we represent literally every single segment of the, of the population. You know, I, I sort of blame Hollywood or, you know, the media sometimes for the, for the wrong perceptions that people have about us. I'm a mom, I'm a grandma, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's nothing sort of, you know, redneck or, or dangerous about, about me or, or, or any of my, you know, people in my community. But you want, you want gun owners to come out of the closet. I was looking at a story that ran in the uh, Ottawa Citizen where it says you want gun owners to come out of the closet and be more open about who they are. A hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, I think we've got this kind of taboo about our, our sport, and I don't understand why. You know, it's featured in the Olympics. It's, you know, guns have been around for for ages. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know any other segment of the population that sort of has this collective guilt about their, um, you know, about their sport the way that gun owners do. And I think that's just, you know, decades and decades of being pounded with negative um, stereotypes you know, we've got crimes being committed with all kinds of things out there, and you don't see other communities being blamed for that. Um, you, we've got a, a huge trend going on right now where people don't want, um, you know, it, it's really popular to push back against judging an entire community mm-hmm. for the actions of one person. Mm-hmm, and yeah. my position is that licensed gun owners deserve that is it, respect. Is it too easy to get certain firearms? Is it too mm-hmm. easy... And let me start, let me just go to the uh, ubiquitous shotgun and the rifle because that's what people initially will will get a license for, and they'll do the test, and they'll get the license. They fill out all the required questions the federal government has for you, and provincial sidebars too. If you happen to be in Quebec, um, 
But you have to fill out all of this information uh, in order to get a rifle or a shotgun. And then beyond right. that, it gets even more um, challenging, more difficult. You have to do more tests, and, and you have to pass more, uh, pass more tests and be really open about who you are. Is it, too, is it too difficult or too easy to get a firearm in this country? Not at all. I mean, it's pretty erroneous. You've got a, a, a two-day course you've got to go take. That's pretty intensive. It goes through regulations. It goes through, you know, laws. It goes through operational use. You know, once you've gone through that course, then you've got to write the exam. You've got to achieve a certain score. That's got to go to the RCMP. You have a background check done against you. You have to fill out a form. You have to indicate even right down to, you know, people you've had sexual relationships with in the last couple of years. I mean, they really delve into your past. Then you have to wait 28 days for your um, application to even really be looked at. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got cases here in, in Canada where people are waiting six or eight months before they're, they're being approved. It's not like we're walking into Walmart and, you know, walking out with an arsenal. It's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a huge process. You know, and even what do you, there's... What do, you so think the, what do you think the objective of the federal government is? Is it to disarm Canadians, to make gun ownership almost impossible? Well, I think so. See, here's the thing. There, there's, there's two different... We've got, to, we've got to separate law-abiding gun owners from people who use crime guns, who are illegal, you know, gun... Um, you know, they're, Criminals. They're in possession of guns illegally. Yeah. And I think what happens is it, it, working on crime is super difficult. The Liberal government made a promise of $100 million to the provinces and territories for their gang units. That promise fell flat, like most promises. You know, and here's the thing. To work on crime is, is hard. It takes a lot of expertise. It takes a lot of commitment. It takes a lot of uh, skill set. And I don't believe they've got it. So what happens is they, they keep Im- implementing more gun control on the people who aren't doing anything wrong. Yeah. And nothing's ever getting solved. Well, it's but two it's separate issues. Doing something. It's two separate issues. They're blending, right. they're blending the two issues, but it's two separate issues that should be dealt with separately entirely separately and it's and gun ownership is is an issue where you're never going to find anybody sitting on the fence people will have strong opinions one way or the other or at least i've never found anybody who's been a fence sitter on guns and right. gun ownership they'll either say yeah there's nothing wrong with it good people owning guns don't worry me or it's nobody should have a firearm what do you need a gun for it's one position or the other. What are your objectives? What What are you aiming for? Here I go again. What are you aiming for at the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights? What we're really aiming for is to finally, in this country, have a have that rational, uh, logical conversation. Uh, you know, uh, stop with the virtue signaling. Stop with you know this kind of wasteful conversation that that keeps happening over and over again. Um, you know, th- there's a there's a message that came you know, last week at the expense of people who lost their lives innocently in a, you know, a tragic, horrific accident. Well, not an accident, a shooting. Um, and the, the whole thing is, the gun control didn't stop that. And I think it's about time we listen to that message. So we've got to take the focus off of continuing to impose more restrictions and more controls on, on literally the most vetted, the most trusted citizens in this country, and actually take the steps to do some work on crime. Mm, that is that that terrible situation in Las Vegas. What that's going to do is create um, a, 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 an instant response, and the response for many is going to be no guns. People don't need them. After seeing that, that'll be that'll be the immediate gut response from a lot of people and politicians who don't want to have guns in private citizens' hands will exploit that to a certain extent. Sure they will. And, you know, I, I mean, um, if that ever came to be, then you, you would have all the law-abiding gun owners, hunters, sports shooters, you know, target shooters. You'd have all those people turning in their guns. Mm-hmm. And then who's left with the guns? The criminals. You know, it, you, it is illegal for criminals to have guns. It is already illegal. So there's not, you know, you, it's time to enforce those laws. It's time to put the resources in to law enforcement agencies that they can enforce those laws yeah. and stop painting this as, as here's what I here's what I here's what I'm afraid is going to happen. The government's going to win this one. They're going to win it, Tracy, because it's it's the kind of story, the it's kind of effort that they can spin to make it look particularly attractive. And my feeling is ultimately, I don't know how quickly, but I think they'll win it. Well. I think it's disingenuous, and I think it's actually dangerous for the government to 
to completely ignore the criminal element. Well, I don't disagree um, with you. I absolutely yeah. do not disagree with you at all. I just think they're going to win it. Well, just, just my gut feeling. It, well, then they'll see a rise in crime. You know, that, yeah, that's, yeah. that's exactly what A lot more to be talked about, though. Tracy Wilson, thank you for the time. Thanks so much, Roy. Good Thanks talking to you. Bye-bye. Tracy Wilson from the uh, Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So immediately, almost immediately after the uh, horror in Las Vegas, Amak, which is the ISIS news agency, claimed responsibility for what took place. And they claimed that Stephen Paddock, the killer, was one of theirs, that he'd converted to uh, Islam a few months earlier, and that he was one of theirs, and that they were very proud of what he'd done. Well, Graham Wood has interviewed ISIS members. His book is The Way of Strangers, Encounters with the Islamic State, and it's available at bookstores now. And uh, I spoke with Graham Wood about this particular claim by ISIS that they had been the ones who had motivated Stephen Paddock to commit the, uh, the atrocity. And here's what uh, Graham Wood's sense was of ISIS making the claim, why ISIS would make the claim, and whether or not they were telling the truth. Have a listen. Graham, had uh, ISIS not claimed Stephen Paddock was one of their soldiers carrying out an ISIS-inspired attack in Las Vegas, was there anything about the mass murder and how Paddock carried it out which might have caused you to think ISIS could be behind the massacre? Well, personally, he doesn't match the profile. I mean, he's too old, he's too white, he's too non-Muslim for that, for that matter. But uh, the fact that he was targeting a concert venue, that he was looking to cause as many deaths as possible, and he was killing pretty much indiscriminately in, uh, in the United States, that's, that's, that's definitely the hallmarks of an, of an ISIS attack. There's just many more things that, that make me doubt that it, it could be ISIS, and if, if ISIS hadn't claimed it, knowing the identity of the perpetrator, I, I don't think I would have thought that it was likely that, that they had anything to do with it at all. So I was reading uh, your article in uh, Atlantic, and you write the notion that IS simply scans the news in search of mass killings and then sends out media releases in hopes of stealing the credit and the attention is false. Um, does ISIS and AMAC news agency not usually falsely claim to be responsible for terror attacks? And do you think it's possible, given their current situation, they may be reaching out for a situation like this and, and claiming it? There are a couple cases in the AMAC news agency's past. And by, the, by, by now, it's actually not just AMAC, but ISIS itself. Uh, AMAC is unofficial, but ISIS now is, has properly claimed this attack. There have been cases where AMAC has falsely claimed to have something to do with, with an attack. But there are many, many more cases where it has been the first one to come out and say what has subsequently been verified, which is that an ISIS supporter did some attack. So it's, it's very uncharacteristic for them to, uh, to, to be claiming something that appears not to have anything to do with them. Now, I don't know whether this is going to turn out to be uh, a, a, a false claim. If, if it is, then they're really spending down their credibility because they've, they've spent years building up a reputation for accurately claiming when people are doing things in, in the name of ISIS. If they're not doing that anymore, it means they're really desperate and they're making some, some really rash decisions. Now, ISIS claims that Paddock converted to Islam months ago. And his brother says Paddock had no history with or particular interest in guns, and yet he'd spent something in the neighborhood of $100,000 on the weapons he amassed over a period of months. It's a, it's a strange combination. Yeah, and I'm as baffled by this as everyone, including, it seems, Paddock's own brother. The, the, the pattern that ISIS claims is that the person, Paddock, uh, converted to Islam and then a few months later did an ISIS-related attack. Now, there's one thing that does seem plausible about that, which is that ISIS frequently will find people who are recent converts to the religion and who came to the religion not in the normal ways, not in ways that, that, that um, most Muslims, or even Muslim converts, come to the religion, but converted basically directly to ISIS's style of Islam. So that, that wouldn't be that odd. The fact that we've seen nothing in his behavior, though, to suggest that he's made that conversion, such as stopping drinking, stopping gambling, all these things that ISIS would disapprove of, makes it really difficult to believe that he, he has, in secret, done this major life uh, change 
and then um, you know so effectively amassed an, an armory and then used it. Mm-hmm. There's still some odd sidebars, like his girlfriend is from the Philippines. The FBI described her as a person of interest in the Philippines. Is the home to Abu Sayyaf, the terrorist group which has uh, sworn allegiance to ISIS. That is true. There are, are ISIS-related groups in the south of the Philippines, not in the areas of the Philippines where Stephen Paddock's girlfriend is from. And just the, the association with the Philippines I don't find even slightly incriminating. It's, it's yet another piece of this that just does not fit into the rest of the puzzle. What's it going to take to make it more plausible? I'm not looking for, I'm not looking for that to happen, but what's it going to take? Is it going to take a follow-up by a mock? Is it possible the FBI and the local police along the, with the White House, would have kept the American people from seeing evidence. Paddock was an ISIS-inspired killer, such as perhaps withholding a video recording by Paddock confirming he'd committed the act in the name of ISIS? I'll be very eager to see the contents of the note that Paddock is supposed to have left. Uh, it's been alluded to by law enforcement. I don't think that anything's being really concealed from us. It, it, it seems like the authorities are, are as confused as anyone. What I think w- we would see if it does turn out that Paddock was uh, working for the Islamic State would be some evidence from the Islamic State, probably in the form of a glossy video, uh, you know, well-produced video, that says, yes, we did it, and here's uh, a short testimonial from our, our soldier, Stephen Paddock. But, you know, we haven't seen any evidence that that exists. We haven't been given any suggestion that, that there's any shred of evidence that Stephen Paddock uh, was associated with the Islamic State. If, if it is, it's, po- it's possible still, but, but uh, the only reason to believe it is that the, the claim has been made. Yeah. You, uh, you know more about ISIS than most people in the world, and I'm looking forward to reading your book, The Way of Strangers, Encounters with the Islamic State. Give us a bit of an idea of what, what you wrote about. What's in the book? Well, the Islamic State was kind of a mysterious force when it arose, and so my goal was to go and find people who were part of the Islamic State, who had sworn allegiance to it, and were doing its propaganda work in particular. So the the book is a record of my conversations with those people in about half a dozen different countries. Um, Most of those people are now behind bars or in in some way being um, watched very closely by, by the authorities. And they all spoke to me, I think I would say, quite articulately about what ISIS was trying to do and why they were willing to put their rather comfortable lives on hold in its service. It was a chilling journey, but it really opened my eyes to what ISIS wanted and what it was all about. And how does ISIS feel about you? Um, you know, when I went to these people, I, I asked them in a very honest spirit, tell me about yourselves, tell me about what you want. And I, when I've reported what they said, I, I, I did so accurately, not uncritically, but accurately. And when I've spoken to them since, they've said, well, you know, we can't really ask for anything more from you than for you to honestly report what we say. And you did that. So I don't think ISIS bears any more ill will toward me than they do toward any other Canadian. The Way of Strangers Encounters with the Islamic State. And Graham Wood is the author, also the author of the Atlantic magazine piece, Why Did the Islamic State Claim the Las Vegas Shooting? Graham, thank you very much for the time. Thank you for having me. Graham Wood from Atlantic magazine. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Richard Curlin, I I lose the ability to connect my brain to my mouth. (laughs) Why is that, dear sir? It's the special coffee during the break. Oh, is that what it is? Maybe. Is, is that the stuff that's just slightly ahead of its time legally? Oh, indeed. Welcome to Vancouver. Welcome to Vancouver, he says. Richard Curland, immigration lawyer, one of the best in the country, has advised both the federal and uh, Quebec governments on immigration matters and is very kind with his time to us. He joins us on uh, on the program now. And the issue... I find this fascinating. Uh, you sent me an email that I thought I should actually forward to Bill Morneau. Mm. But I didn't because it's not my email, it's yours. <laughs> but Mr. Morneau keeps talking about tax fairness, and what he's been able to do is annoy doctors and farmers and entrepreneurs and large business owners. He's been just, he's annoyed just about everybody with this pursuit of tax fairness, which many people seem to think is more a case of trying to cover up for massive um, deficits and massive borrowing that isn't going to do this country a bit of good. But 
I find what you've suggested here to be quite remarkable. Taxation based on citizenship, not residence. Please, sir, explain. Well, social justice and tax fairness should ring a bell somewhere. We now have literally over two and a half million Canadian citizens living outside Canada. They pay no tax. They file no tax return. So this is low-hanging fruit. Why are we going after the farmers, the small business people, the professionals, when we can literally change our Income Tax Act to require non-resident Canadians to file their tax returns uh, to pay their fair share? And uh, this will, at the same time, address a rather unusual situation in terms of fairness. We have in Canada some of our wealthiest families who arrange their affairs legitimately so that they do not appear to be resident in Canada for tax purposes, even though they're living here four or five months a year. And that's how legally our wealthiest families in the country properly avoid Canadian taxation. We do not have, like the United States, most Western European countries, the simple rule, if you are a citizen in our country, file a tax return. Maybe you won't have to pay anything because of double taxation treaties, because you don't earn enough overseas to trigger a tax-paying obligation, but file your global earnings, your global property holdings, so we know what you're doing overseas. And I'll tell you something. If you crunch the numbers, requiring over 2.5 million Canadian citizens who are living overseas, uh, you're going to make a lot more money for our Canadian Treasury than running down the street chasing farmers, small business, and professionals. Not only that, I think if you keep on chasing the farmers, the small business operators, the professionals, you keep chasing them, you'll chase them right out of the country, and then you'll lose that tax base, as you just pointed out, unless the rules change. Well, that's it. I mean, it's, it's, something's wrong. I, why, no one has clearly explained why Canada chooses to continue to tax based on residents. It's absurd. Uh, it's an anachronism. Uh, we're probably one of the last countries on the planet doing that. And frankly, it's unfair. People who want their Canadian citizenship are entitled to participate. Even if you're not living in Canada, you're benefiting from that Canadian passport, mm-hmm. visa-free travel around the world, mm-hmm. emergency evacuation whenever you need it. Plus, all the brand name attached to Canada is your sanctuary umbrella while you're living scot-free of taxes or filing income tax returns uh, outside Canada. And likely what we're going to see is this. In June 2015, the Harper government brought in a new rule. You can't get Canadian citizenship uh, by naturalization unless at the same time you file copies of four Canadian income tax returns you filed. Under the new government, it's down to three Canadian income tax returns, or you can't access Canadian citizenship. So if we're doing that with new Canadian citizens to access our citizenship, we have to do it across the board. And I, when we, when, what happened when that new rule came in, guess what? People tossed their, didn't apply for citizenship because mm. they didn't want to file tax returns. And if people don't want to file tax returns, no new passport, relinquish voluntarily your Canadian citizenship, uh, or file. That should be the choice. I, don't, I really don't think it's appropriate public policy to let two and a half million Canadian citizens go scot-free and chase down our farmers, small business people, and, and professionals. So if I were to choose, so, so Richard, if I were to choose under the current reality 
to move somewhere else there where we don't have a, a, a tax agreement of any kind with Canada? Or does that even matter? It doesn't really matter. Okay, so if I, were to, if I were to move, if I were to take my slightly more money than Donald Trump has, mm. I was waiting for the one-liner. If I were to take... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, we're going to have to split uh, your interest on that. But, I, I, but I knew the word split would show up somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but we do have... But if I were to move, so, so if I were to move somewhere else... And I were to be there for seven months a year, mm. and I were to come back to Canada for five months a year, there are mechanisms in place where I could actually avoid paying Canadian income tax, live in that other place for seven months, take advantage of their lower tax rate, not lose any of my Canadian rights, privileges, and, and, and opportunities. Yeah, am I correct? Well, yeah, yeah, every case is different. Each case requires uh, some legal advice and professional help from the accountants. But well. uh, you, you could face a Medicare issue. Uh -huh. But the big picture, which you supplement with private insurance, but the big picture is exactly that. There are Canadians living in completely tax-free jurisdictions, like uh, in the Middle East, uh, and uh, will use their Canadian status at whim. Same thing for uh, People's Republic of China, mm -hmm. which has significant impact here in Vancouver because you have Canadian citizens who flash their passport at the time of selling Vancouver property and claim to be resident, but no one checks. <laughs> and the money and the body are, are way far in Beijing uh, when that's not how things are supposed to unfold. Okay, my friend, in 30 seconds, what has to happen now? A uh, debate. Why is Canada taxing on... You still there? Hello, Richard. Richard is gone. Why is Richard gone? I'm still here. Okay, still go here. ahead. Well, you see, CRA, you, you start talking, the lines start clicking. No, but uh, basically, in 10 that. seconds, uh, the wealthiest families in this country... Uh, are affected by this taxation by residence deal. Mm -hmm. We have to flip it to citizenship, and I want to see what our wealthiest families are going to do as a social consequence. So don't go after the, the, the easy, we can't fight back crowd, yeah, yeah. farmers. Hit it, the non-resident Canadian citizens, two and a half million of them, and thank me later. Well, Mr. Kerland, you may have just come up with a solution. I hope so, and it's courtesy to you, and I really appreciate all that you've done. Uh, you really have, over the years, had a significant, dramatic impact on public policy formulation. I've said it publicly. Really? Yes, sir. Well, Mr. Curlin, I was about to say we should split something, but I'll take that back. <laughs> it's always great talking to you, Richard. Thank you Thank so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> take care. Richard Curlin, good friend and uh, great lawyer. That's just a very interesting plan. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Kito Maggi joins me. He's the president of Mainstream Research, and they're polling the Calgary mayoral race. And, uh, Kito, thanks for taking the time. You're, you're really uh, spot on with so many of your predictions. I'll never forget what your polling showed last 2015 for the federal election, you were the first to say it was going to be a liberal majority government. So here we are just days away from the uh, from the Calgary vote. Last weekend when we talked, Mr. Nenshi was in trouble. He was eight points back of Bill Smith. What's the situation today? Yeah, he was nine points back last week. Was it nine? And, okay. And, and this week uh, we find him 17 points back of Bill Smith. And, you know, that, that with the undecided down a point, with uh, someone else down a point, the, the, the path for Nenshi's re-election is really, really narrow at this point. I, I hesitate at this point to say that it's over, but uh, he, it's virtually impossible for him to get uh, re-elected at this point. I, I would prepare for a, a new mayor in, uh, in Calgary come the, the 16th. Now, why Bill Smith? A lot of people are saying, what do we really know about Bill Smith? Yeah, I mean, there's not uh, a lot of people outside of uh, Alberta don't know who Bill Smith is. Bill Smith is uh, former president of the of PC Alberta. 
uh, very well-connected individual in politics. Um, you know, he started out with a big financial advantage. He had all the networks for fundraising, um, you know, which has been a bit of an issue. And at the end of the day, he ran on the right message of change. And essentially, this is a not necessarily a Bill Smith vote, um, because he hasn't, you know, admittedly put out a lot of policy out there. Um, this is an anti-Nenshi sentiment. We've been seeing his approval slip for the last two years, in fact. The economy hasn't been that great in Alberta with the downturn in oil prices. That's been pretty prolonged. Um, and it's had a huge effect in Calgary, especially much more so than in Edmonton. Um, you know, office vacancies in, in the downtown are, are record highs. Uh, property taxes has gone from being non-existent issue to being the number one issue in, in this civic election. Um, that's what happens when economies uh, have a long, a prolonged downturn as what's happened uh, in Alberta. Does the size of the lead and the relative unknown factor for Bill Smith, and even with some Albertans, does, does the size of the lead and, you know, 2014, we said last weekend, Nenshi was the, uh, considered the best mayor in the world in 2014. Does the size of the lead, I'll say for the third time and finish the sentence this time, does it surprise you? It doesn't surprise me, but, um, you know, I'll tell you, I, I wouldn't expect to see the, the lead be that, that big on Election Day. We know uh, Nenshi's team is really, if there's a Hall of Fame for politics, a lot of uh, Nenshi himself and a lot of his team would be in that Hall of Fame. Uh, his chief of staff, his campaign managers, advisors, pollsters, all one and all just absolutely top shelf talent. Um, these guys are going to to really pull out all the stops on election day, get out their vote, get out their vote in advance. We know that advanced vote turnout is up dramatically in Calgary. So that's going to make a difference. That organizational expertise, the advantage in volunteers um, is going to make a difference. So they might be able to close the gap. It's just too big a gap to make up Uh you know, turnout, get up, get out the vote can make up a five-point gap. It can't make up 17 points. Pretty confident at this point to say uh, Calgary's going to have a new mayor on the 16th. By how much the winner's going to be, that much we won't know. We're going to be back in the field after Thanksgiving to get that final snapshot. Keto, what about uh, a message that may be being sent to the current Premier of Alberta? Is this uh, is this polling of Alberta, of, uh, of Calgary, sending a message to Rachel Notley. It should be a bit of a concern to Rachel Notley and, and probably to Justin Trudeau as well. What we do know from this new sample, because we changed the frame and it's caused a bit of issues on Twitter today about apples and oranges, and they're not directly comparable with last week's poll, but um, but but the, the, the point I'm trying to make about the frame difference is when we, uh, when we measure by ward... Uh, you know, we know that Nancy is leading in Ward 7, in Ward 8, 9, 3, uh, three 4, and 5, and he's losing huge in 1, 2, and then 11, 12, 13, and 14. Um, those are the wards that correspond to the three ridings that the Liberals did best in uh, federally, Confederation, Calgary Center, Skyview, uh and where most of the NDP uh, seats are in the provincial legislature. So the good news for uh, Rachel Notley and Justin Trudeau is those parts of Calgary that uh, tend to vote center-center-left will are continuing to do so. It, it's just the other parts are overwhelming, um, those in the overall Calgary mayoral count. All right. Keto, thank you so much for the time. It'll be fascinating to see how this all turns out, and Mayor Nenshi will have a, an opportunity to run again in 2019 yes, in that please. little election. Thanks for having me again, Roy. All the best. Keto Maggi is the uh, CEO, president of Mainstream Research Polling in Calgary. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, with us now on, on our Beauties and the Beast on uh, Saturdays, uh, Michelle Simpson is on vacation, but uh, stepping in for Michelle 
is Brian Jean, a federal member of parliament, uh, candidate for the leadership of the United Conservative Party of Alberta, and uh, has a few things to say about Energy East. Brian, it's uh, great to have you with us. Great to be here. Uh, I should correct you, though, I'm no longer a member of parliament. I know. Ten years ago. I know. I'm an MLA now. I know. I just, I know. I don't know why I said Thanks. that. I had a moment. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Kath- okay. Catherine Swift, Catherine Swift, formerly the uh, CEO and president of Canadian Federation of Independent Business, now working Canadians.ca, and her favorite job is this one. Absolutely. On Beauties and the Beast. How are you? I'm very good, thank you, and welcome, Brian. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And Linda Leatherdale, vice president of Cambria Canada, formerly the money editor for the Toronto Sun. Ms. Leatherdale. Hello, Roy. Hello, Catherine. And hello, Brian. Hello. <laughs> she makes she makes hello sound really special, doesn't she, Brian? <laughs> Linda has that ability. Very much. Very much. <laughs> You're Brian, very welcome. <laughs> Brian, let's uh, let's get you. I've, I've read your release about uh, the Energy East pipeline being canceled and what it means on the the celebration that's come out of Quebec, but in in your words to the people of your province of Alberta and to uh, Canadians uh, right across this country listening to this program, have at it, please, sir. Tell us what it means, what uh, what we should be considering, and what you would like to say to Mr. Kader and his disciples. Well, they're wrong. Uh, they are totally wrong about the effect of this, and what we do out here in Western Canada is we produce great crude oil that is... Uh, creating wealth right across the country. We do it better than anybody else in the world as far as the environment and human rights, the rule of law. I never thought it would get so bad that TransCanada would lose confidence and take a $1 billion write-off rather than keep trying to develop this vital national project. And as you know, Roy, this would have added more than $50 billion to the wealth of the people of Canada, not just the people of Alberta, but the people of Canada. And as somebody that's been in Fort McMurray for 50 years, represented the people of Alberta for you know 14 years almost now as a politician, I can tell you that most of the people in Fort McMurray and area are not from Alberta. They're from all across the country, and they've had tremendous wealth and, and generated tremendous wealth for their families right across the country. And, and we believe that this is a nation-building project. And uh, frankly, uh, Denny Coderre, the Montreal mayor, is, you know, I, I used to work with him in Ottawa, and I can tell you, I don't think he's ever going to be in favor of any pipeline or any any progress or anything, frankly, from, from any other province that will do good for the people of that province. He's he's a man that doesn't believe, in my opinion, in building people up or in, and empowering people, but instead tearing them down. And that's not helpful to national unity. This is, frankly, an attack on Alberta, and, and uh, we are not going to take it. I have one more thing to say to Brian, then I'll ask Catherine and Linda to uh, to say what they need to see and ask questions. When Brian, when, when you look at what's going on in Quebec and you see what the, the traffic on the St. Lawrence River, you have the tankers coming in from the Middle East. One of them was a massive, massive tanker. Didn't make it all the way to Montreal, but it was there. And they and they pose a significant environmental threat. Uh, and I, I can just see the day when one of these tankers springs a massive leak and it's going to be uh, Quebec that will be calling on the rest of Canada to, to, uh, to assist them. So uh, tankers not allowed on the, on the West Coast, but tankers are welcome, according to Quebec, uh, in, in, uh, on the St. Lawrence River. Tankers, I might add, that carry 600 to 700,000 barrels a day of crude from foreign dictators that treat their citizens terribly, don't give women the right to vote, and, and frankly, not even until recently, the right to drive. This is not the country or people we want to support. What we want to support is the people of Canada. Clean, ethical oil, good oil. And this, these tankers that are coming in, uh, you know, obviously inland quite a bit, are single-hauled tankers. They're not safe, as the ones are in, on the West Coast. Uh, but now we have politics that's getting in the way of reality. And reality is that we have over 200,000 Albertans that are unemployed. We have an economy that is going the wrong way, not just in Alberta, but in many places across the country. And that's because we have politicians that want to do the, you know, they're too concerned about the political uh, situation rather than the practical situation. And the practical situation, people are unemployed. And we need to support those people and provide them every single opportunity to create wealth for themselves. This was a private sector investment, not one bit of public money, just like Northern Gateway. And again, there's all of these people that are from different places that are only concerned about their own political future, not the future of Canada, and not worried about Confederation. This is a threat to Confederation. Mark my word for it. Over 
80% of the people I talk to in Alberta, and I've been on the ground a lot, are frankly disgusted and fed up. Catherine, a threat to Confederation. Well, I, I, I wouldn't underestimate that one bit. Uh, what, what strikes me about a lot of issues surrounding this is the hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is extremely widespread here. we got somebody like Kader, uh, you know, rejoicing because this project that would have helped the country, including Quebec, uh, is, is failed. And yet, you know, if we cut off a smidgen of transfer payments, most of which come from Alberta, by the way, to Quebec, can you just imagine how he'd be lighting his hair on fire, Kader? So, you know, what hypocrisy. The, the kind of things that generate billions of dollars that the rest of the country sends to Quebec, he is happy is not going to proceed. Does this guy look beyond his nose? I don't think so. And the hypocrisy of Trudeau as well. You know, he pretended he was approving these various projects while at the same time making the regulatory hurdles so very prohibitive that, you know, unless he's a total dolt, which is possible, of course, but, I mean, he had to know he was just being a total hypocrite pretending that he was approving pipelines that he knew and his, his uh, cabinet colleagues knew were never going to happen in reality. Shame on them all. Brian? Well, let's just say that I agree with everything that's just been said, but I will tell you that the transfer payments are going to stop. If I get the privilege of leading this province, we will have a referendum, the same as the reference case in Quebec during the 1990s. I promised this for 18 months to the people of Alberta. We will have a referendum within one year. We will call into question equalization and the Constitution, as is required, and we will ask the Supreme Court of Canada to come in and referee. We will stop these transfer payments. We're sick of it. We're done with it. It's, got, it's finished. And what if Quebec will not come forward and help us, we will... Stop it. Brian, what are the people of Alberta specifically saying to you since Friday? What are they saying to you? They're saying, why are we not treated fairly? Why do we keep sending billions of dollars down to Ottawa, 22 to $28 billion a year, $190 billion from 2007 to 2014? Why do we continuously send it down east? And these folks don't even allow us to put through our pipelines. They're in control. They take the money, and yet they don't give us anything back. We don't even have the same coverage rights on unemployment insurance as the people of Quebec or the people of, of the Maritimes. We need to be treated fairly. This is confederation, which means we're in a partnership. We are not in a dictatorship, and we are taking it to the referee. And frankly, we're calling foul, and we're going to send the federal government and hopefully Trudeau to the penalty box forever, which means that we're going to work ever so hard to make sure he does not win the next federal election. Linda, your turn. Question for Brian, maybe? Uh, uh, Brian, go for it. Because when you look now in Quebec having surpluses, even talking about tax cuts, which really blows my mind, and this is 8%. so unfair that the equalization, they're getting billions in equalization payments, and indeed, Alberta, God bless Alberta. I live there, love it, and we are part of Confederation, and oil industry means a lot to our economy. And they say with a business decision, no, this was a political decision. And shame, shame on Ottawa and shame on Quebec, because this is not the way to run a country. One thing, I thought, one thought I had um, on Friday, and Brian, you just, when you said threat to Confederation, what, the thought I had was, this is the, what they've just done is, um, I, I think they, they put in the first stone in place to revisit October 30th, 1995, but with another group, group of Canadians asking their own question this time. Absolutely. Last year, believe it or not, Quebec got $10 billion in equalization payments. Wow. $10 billion. They had a $1.3 billion surplus. Meanwhile, Alberta, $10.3 billion deficit, mm -hmm. and we still paid equalization. Mm -hmm. Catherine, final it's thought of yours. absolutely ridiculous. It's got to stop. And I'm sorry, Roy, I just get so angry at this. And you know why I'm angry? I'm not angry about the money. I'm angry about the unemployed Albertans, the Alberta families that can't afford to take their children and make sure that they have what they need. An Alberta family that has to work long 12-hour shifts, six days in a row, then six nights in a row. This is the way we work here in Alberta. We work hard. We're proud to be part of Confederation. We're proud to share all of our riches with the rest of Canada because that's what we do. But let's be clear, it's going to stop if I get in get the privilege of being the premier well, of this Brian, it's going to stop. Brian, the reality is you have to take care of the people of Alberta and care for them because clearly Quebec politicians don't give a damn and neither does the occupant 
of the corner office and the PMO. I think you hit it best, Roy, when you said, does he think at all? Yeah, does he think at all? Catherine, final words, thoughts, question? Uh, final word is, uh, Canadians, let's remember this. Let's remember this next election, whether it's Alberta election, because Rachel Notley has been very, very quiet and in hiding through all this, or a Coderre, or our federal, you know, prime minister, because these are people that have squelched a mega-billion-dollar project that would have created many, many jobs and much opportunity right across the country. Mm-hmm. And this is a disgrace, as Brian said. Private sector money. No government money here. This, this should, most countries would view this as an amazing bonus, but no, not in Canada. So vote, vote with your feet, people. Well, Brian, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Always good talking to you. And this, is, this isn't over yet. Uh, the final word belongs to the people who say it's their right to have the final word. Quebec's had theirs. It's time for Albertans to have theirs. We will have the final word, my friend. This is the first step. The people of Alberta are going to take back this province and be in control of our future. If we're not treated fairly, we will make sure that Quebec is cut off from transfer payments, as is the federal government. And we have the right under the Constitution to do that, and we will do it. We're done. We're done. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Brian Jean, running for the leadership of the United Conservative Party uh, of uh, Alberta. And there you have it. If Mr. Gene becomes the premier of Alberta, he's going to work diligently and follow uh, every op- constitutional opportunity to, um, to block any transfer payments to Quebec from the province of Alberta. And why would they not? And why would they not? The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.